0: We're uh, in the middle of an interesting series called I'm Just Asking, and we have uh, surfaced the questions that we have concerning faith and um, trust in the Lord, Um, things that have sometimes troubled us very deeply, uh, um, sometimes just kind of stayed in the back of our minds as something that we wonder about and even worry about. And you might have remembered that we played the, um, the, the soundtrack and the, the video of a song called Jersey on the Wall by Tennille Towns. And I want to remind you of some of the lyrics of that because we're kind of coming right back to that today. Uh, the chorus part of it says If I ever get to heaven, you know I got a long list of questions. Like, how do you make a snowflake? Are you angry when the earth quakes? How does the sky change in a minute? How do you keep this big rock spinning? Why can't you stop a car from crashing? Forgive me, I'm just asking. And somewhere there's a mother who stopped going to church because your plan quit making sense down here on earth. If I ever get to heaven, you know I got a long list of questions like how do you make a snowflake? Are you angry when the earthquakes? How does the sky change in a minute? How do you keep this big rock spinning? Why couldn't you stop that car from crashing? Forgive me, I'm just asking. Oh, I'm just asking. You don't have to answer now, oh, but someday. So why couldn't he stop that car from crashing? The story comes from a real-life situation. A high school um, boy dies in a car crash. Why did God not stop that crash from happening? If God knows everything, if God can do anything if god really does love us personally and individually which is what we asserted last week right we we have all kinds of scripture that says that god doesn't just know us as kind of a faceless mob of people but he knows us one by one psalm 139 is down to the intricate detail that he formed us in our mother's womb that we're told elsewhere that he knows how many hairs are in our head done with the comments on that one right So if he knows everything about us, and if he knows us so intimately, um, why doesn't he stop the trouble in our lives? Why does a little girl like Janelle have Crohn's disease as a, a young teenager? Why does she have to lie in a hospital bed for several weeks and then face surgery and miss a huge chunk of her schooling? Why... Why does God not do something about that, right? Don't we have those questions? And sometimes those questions are so shocking and so severe that they cause us to walk away, right? We say, there's just no way that I can reconcile a God who you tell me loves me and knows me, but won't do anything. I talked to a lady, I think I told you this before, um... When she was telling me about her whole long struggle with cancer, um, she said, and do you know what God was doing that whole time? I said, you tell me. She said, he just sat on his hands. That's pretty severe, isn't it? So I want to bring you a frank conversation today that I think will not make you happy. Probably some of you will push back and say, "I, I can't accept what you're saying but over decades and decades and decades of pastoral ministry, um, I think I've come to s- sort of a place of being settled, although you can't be settled on matters of, of suffering at all. But I think I have s- something of an answer to the why and what of the suffering of the, of the human life. Um, forgive me, I'm just asking, why couldn't you stop that car from crashing? Well, Here is a passage in Romans chapter 8 that is the stuff of a theology of suffering. And I want very carefully to say that um, the the matter of suffering in the human life and in the Christian life, in the faithful life, is not something that's just a riddle to solve or a puzzle to work out. It is something that is deeply perplexing and deeply existential. So even though I present some things to you today, in fact, an an idea of how it is that the God who loves us personally and individually doesn't do something about the car crash. um, We will then come back when Advent starts, and we're going to talk about a grace, um, a certain kind of grace in our Christian lives. We'll, We'll call it the grace of sorrow. And we're going to talk about some prayers and some ways to walk in the sorrow of times of our lives and times of other people's lives. When it's not easy to sing songs of joy and triumph, there are laments instead that fill our hearts and our minds and, and even our, our voices. So we're going to come to that because we want to, to honestly face the fact that trouble in Christians' lives can come and feel as though it has slammed us against the wall. It has pushed us to the very limit of what we thought we could believe or thought we could manage. And some of us say, I don't know, it just feels like God was sitting on his hands. Here's what Paul in Romans 8 says. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. What strikes you about that passage? Go ahead and call out to me what it is that catches your attention or your imagination. Or what's the idea in here that you are grasping or grappling with? Subject, Subject to, futility. to futility. Yeah. What? What is that? What else catches your imagination? Say again. Creation longs, right? Creation groans, or another way to translate it, is sighs. Um, My mom was master at Irish mother sighing. Have you ever heard those? It's particularly on garbage day when she's making her way from the back door to the curb with the garbage that you, the teenagers, should have taken out. It's accompanied with a long sigh. Let's practice the sigh. Ready? A, A deep breath and then slowly exhale. Ready? One, two, three. That's with a bit of a grin to it. But this passage says that creation is groaning. Creation is sighing. What else catches your imagination in this passage? There must be a solution. Okay. Mm -hmm. Him who subjected it. Creation is groaning. We're going to see that it's the, the groaning of childbirth somehow or other. But creation is sighing. It is longing um The Greek word that starts it out when it says that creation waits eagerly it literally uh, means the face is pressing forward so if you if you capture the the emotion of the deep sigh and the image of a face that is pressing forward like peering forward stretching into the future um, all of creation is like that. do you see that? ever in creation do you do you feel it's groaning it's do you hear it sighing do you see it stretching forward into something more and the thing that is probably most provocative in all of this is that creation was subjected to futility which means everything about it will be futile at the end of the day um the the probably the clo- the clearest um, description of that is back with Adam and Eve, where Adam becomes someone who doesn't just bring produce from the earth, but comes by the sweat of his brow, right? So it didn't used to be hard to stay on top of the weeds. It didn't used to be hard to bring a lush, lush harvest. But creation was subjected to futility. No, No matter what you tried to do with Creation—it's—it's it's going to be futile, which means it'll try and try and try and try without the proper results. Maybe something will happen, but you'll be frustrated because it's not right. And that's the state of our world. That no matter that some things go right, sooner or later something happens, and it's futility. It's futility with economics. It's futility with politics. It's futility with peace. Um, the provocative part of all of this is that it we're told who did this, right? Who did it? Go ahead and dare to say the answer. Did I? Yes, but what does the passage say? It doesn't name him. God subjected creation to futility. He did it. Now I have a bigger problem, because if all of the aspects of futility that I'm trying to manage, including the car crash, including the cancer, including the breakups, including the challenges, the reason they don't work is God. He's subjected it all to futility. And then Paul uses the word that we came to love when we talked about why Jesus came, which is an old theological word word called corruption. That's what's wrong with us. The creation of which we are part is thoroughly corrupt. And whatever that word connotes to you, that's what it means. There's something fundamentally flawed and wrong. It is wrong in all of its, its essence. It is corrupt, and now we get back to the prior reason. The reason it's corrupt is because of us. We corrupted it, didn't we? So it got corrupted because we decided that the God who made it, who owned it, and who deserved to be its Lord, um, he gave us the option about whether to let him be that or to take over And we took over. And then we get mad at him because it doesn't work very well. Now we shake our fists at him. And I think God's answer to us is, okay, let's go back to the beginning. Corruption, your choice. Still your choice. Futility, my judgment. In hope. So you can't stop with the futility of corruption because the end of the logic is that it is in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. So that's one thing. It is mirrored by into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, right? Slavery to corruption is going to change into freedom instead of slavery and the glory of the children of God instead of corruption. Creation's face is eagerly leaning forward to that hope. But in the meantime, we're stuck with the futility that God has visited on his creation, his created nature and his created people. What do we do then with the fact that he set that in motion and doesn't intend to fix it until he sets into freedom the children of God, which presumably is still future, because creation is stretching toward it. It's longing for it. And we join with creation, for we know that the whole creation groans, suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, because it's longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Something is going to happen, which is called the revelation of the children of God. Um, what God has been doing in the background and in the foreground is all aiming towards the revelation of the children of God. When that comes, we will be set free from slavery to corruption, and we will live into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In the meantime, the car crashes. And what do you do? So the, the thing that bothers people about what I believe in this Is that honestly, it seems to me that suffering is random and chaotic. A way I've described it, and then somebody reminded me that I used to talk about this all the time, and then Bethany said, Well, you've never talked about it here, and I thought, I probably just got tired of my saying it everywhere else. Here it is. For me, suffering is our having pulled the roof down on our heads and the debris falls indiscriminately. Okay? So I don't think God chooses who's going to have cancer. I'm positive he doesn't. That within an atom, there's randomness, and within the order of God and his relationships with people, there's randomness. God does not decide who will die in a car crash. God does not decide... Whether or not you will get a parking spot, because there's the downside of it. If 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 I believe that it's all chaotic, what are you doing praying for things? Well, it's not going to make any difference. That's what people push back because they will say, "I prayed, and here's what God did, and I know for sure it was an answer to prayer." Do you? Maybe. I'll 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 make room for that. But I'll also ask you if you would dare to see the opposite being true, that if God did answer your prayer. So I remember a long ago there was a terrible accident on the Trans Canada um, just outside of Vancouver. And the newspaper reported a grandmother who was the grandmother of children in one of the vehicles who were all spared, and yet there were three or four fatalities in the other vehicle and she thanked God for saving the lives of her grandchildren what do you think did he did he also then choose to not spare the lives of the other ones which way is it you'll be okay with me before I'm done I think Paul at the beginning of this little uh, piece of scripture and at the end he he says all of this so this is the end part of it and then the beginning part of it end of it says and not only this but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves grown within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body and he had he had begun the whole passage by saying this For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we're squared away on the creation and all of us groaning, faces pushing forward, looking for the redemption of the sons of God, the children of God. It's just what to do with the meantime when we have a mess that we're part of. So here are my conclusions, I think. Um, Phil Zyla is a a professor at Mac Divinity School, and he has written a book, um, and in it he talks about suffering and talks about it in a a pastoral way, and a theological way. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. He says, suffering is not a problem to be solved or a little to be explained but rather it is a reality to be confronted in cooperation with God's own expressed intentions in the world. Generally, there's only a meta-cause-and-effect relationship in the midst of our futility. You say, that's good. I don't even understand what you're saying, so how can I say whether I agree or disagree? What I mean is... When a lady in the cancer clinic where I was a chaplain for several years said, I think I know now why I have cancer. And she told me the story how she had done something mean to a friend, a a school chum. And she said, Now I know that's why God has given me cancer. And my head went bonkers on that, right? Because she was wrong. I think. But for her, it made sense. Her her world needed to be ordered. So if that's the way it needed to make sense to her, that's the way she would make it play out in her memory and in her mind. And we all think that sometimes. Why did this happen to me? Like, what's the cosmic explanation for this happening to me? good or bad if you are blessed by something wonderful what's the cosmic reason for that it's random it's because where you were born where you got to go to school who your parents were what choices you made is it ever God yes yes indeed But generally speaking, we have pulled the roof down on our heads. We have invited the corruption. And God says, if you want the corruption, you're going to have to take the futility that comes on its heels. So as the roof comes down on you, the debris is going to be indiscriminate as to who gets hit by that debris. Sighing is the normal state of futility right whistling a song is not the normal state of waiting stretching forward towards the freedom of the children of god freedom from corruption into freedom of the glory of of the children of god whatever that's going to look like so ignoring the stuff that goes on is not that's not good um Feeling like you've been overwhelmed and so, so you're weary of all the bad news so i'm not we're not going to think about the bad news anymore we should it's more normal in the state of futility for us to groan and sigh than to sing a cheerful song and yet we fill ourselves with songs of triumphalism we we fill our songs with words about victory. Um, There's one writer, Michael Frost, who keeps saying, where are the dirges? Where are the battle songs? Where are the sad songs that properly represent what the Christian life actually is? How many are happy you came here today? Because this is just really a picker-upper, isn't it? Okay. Here's good news. God sometimes interrupts our futility. You know what happens? I think God sometimes can't help himself. That's not theologically accurate by any means. But I think sometimes God looks and he says, I can't stand it. I'm going to answer that prayer. I'm going to bring that miracle. I'm going to heal that person. Um, But it's against the normal scheme of things in which corruption has demanded futility. And for most of us, most of the time, there's not an explanation or there's not necessarily an interruption. Except when God says, "Oh, I am so eagerly looking forward to to the redemption of the children of God. I'm going to give them a little taste of it right? That's God saying the kingdom is here. Jesus came and he he did the signs of the kingdom. Those weren't to be normal. They were just, he was saying when the kingdom comes, it's going to be like this. There won't be any deaf people in the kingdom. There won't be any sick people in the kingdom. There won't be any fighting in the kingdom. So I'll, I'll give you a little dose of that, just a little taste of it. And I don't know how God sorts that out as to how he decides when many times when I see those times where God seems to have interrupted I get a bit of a glimpse about why he did because I see that there's a payoff for him for his glory and for our growth when he does the unusual and if anyone today stops praying for miracles because of me then I I am to be you know cast aside it is not my job to to cause you to doubt but it is my job to try to adjust the expectation that says even though it's corruption and futility you get a pass you don't and i don't it didn't become a bed of roses when we follow christ in fact for many people in the world it was a death sentence when they said jesus christ is my lord so things are tougher, but God sometimes does interrupt our futility. Do you think that? Right? How many would say, definitely God interrupted futility for me here and there and, and everywhere else, right? And, and that's true. But, but the thing is, when you tell testimonies about that, many other people's spirits are condemned because they think, oh man, if I had that kind of faith... How many of you claim that it was because of the strength of your faith that God did the interruption? Strength of your faith? <laughs> Hands down. Maybe, maybe, but that's what we put on one another, right? If you have enough faith and pray hard enough, you can get the answer for this. And there's, there are whole theologies around that that are heresies, right? That, that's not the way it works. God... Subjected creation to futility. He, he didn't give you an angel at your beck and call to fix everything. There's a huge poster on the way into Toronto near the airport that says, You've been assigned an angel. Come to church and we'll introduce you. Really? Anyway, leave that alone. And here's the. Crux of the message. God always joins us in hope and means it for good. Right? He, he has an enormous ability to craft even the futility into good. So, Joseph, great story, you know. Spoiled kid, special coat, angry brothers. Here comes some riffraff. Let's sell him to them instead of leaving him in the pit. So they buy him. Uh, He gets to Egypt, gets to be the prime minister of Egypt. Things go awry in Israel. And so the brothers go to Egypt and they beg the prime minister to help them because there's a famine where they've come from and they get that this is their brother that they thought was dead. They hope he doesn't recognize them, but he knows who they are, right? And what a story. And so because of um, Joseph's intervention in Egypt, Egypt thrives, um, the brothers are helped, and then the, the brothers think that their goose is cooked because now they're outed. And what is Joseph going to do now? He, and Joseph plays head games with them, right? He hides things in their bags. He hides things in Benjamin's back. Benjamin is the favored kid brother. And they're man, what are we gonna do now? He's gonna have our heads and Benjamin, he is a kid. Yeah. All things worked out, and at the end, Joseph said something to his brothers. You meant it for evil, and God meant it for good. Which being interpreted is My life was random because of you, because of those Ishmaelites, because of the Pharaoh, for all kinds of reasons, because of the weather. My life was chaotic and random, but God meant it for evil. What? All of it. Because there's no... There are no scrambled eggs that God can't unscramble. So that's the grace of God, that we are eagerly stretching forward and we're saying we get that the futility of this life, of this world, this futility is from God. Because it had to be demonstrated that we need him as sovereign. We we need to worship him as Lord. So of course we can't have the cake and eat it too we can't have the cake of our sovereignty and also live as though there is no God there is and he's not happy futility reigns but in the meantime God interrupts and does things full of grace and God gets in the middle of our messes and he makes good out of what is terrible Because he's just very good at that. And because all of it is a way that he casts forward and says, Oh, and when my kingdom comes, it'll be like that 24-7. Always be like that. Forgive me, I'm just asking. Why couldn't you stop the car from crashing? Yeah, of course he could. But maybe we know why. A little bit more. And maybe we are helped... Um, to not try to live idyllic lives well planned and organized as though this is it. But maybe there's enough sorrow to go around that causes us to lift our heads and stretch our faces forward and say, boy, we are groaning here. And let us groan together. Um, the worst thing is a lonely person in grief in the middle of a community not knowing how to speak to her or of her or what um, promise me that you'll never say God needed another flower in his garden so that's why he took her right? Um, promise me that you won't say it will all work out for good because that's sort of true but it's sort of smarmy promise me that you'll tell one another that the sorrow that we're in is deep. It's palpable. And the whole creation feels it with us because we are longing for something so good and all of this will be shed. But not yet. Right. So why don't we pray. Father, in all of this, um, May I not disparage your character or your nature, but we seek to understand how we can navigate uh, the debris of our worlds and our lives. Father, we pray that we can be people of faith and trust, that along with all of this, we will still be the child that dares to call to climb up on his father's lap and just ask boldly for things that he wants. Um, thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.